your brain is telling you, you know, you're a, you're a serial killer. So why, as far as I know, are you not a serial killer? Why would I answer that? I'm welcoming on the show today the eminent Dr. James Fallon, Professor of Psychiatry and Human Behaviour at the University of California. And don't I sound excited? James is renowned for his work in all sorts of neurosciencey fields, but is perhaps most well known for his developments in the field of psychopathy. His story is pretty exceptional, and I'll let him tell it without giving too much away, although I had to a bit in the title to entice you all to listen to this. So I will say this much. While looking at brain scans, he came across one that clearly denoted that of a dangerous killer psychopath before realising it was his own. We speak about brain scans, genes, Alzheimer's and stuff like that, as well as what it is like for him to be a psychopath and the difference between that and a sociopath, how one becomes one, all sorts of things. I take a little while before getting to the point of asking him about his own psychopathy, you know, in order to not be rude and just go, you're a psychopath, you know. Um, (laughs) Dr. Fallon came out to the neuroscience world and wrote The Psychopath Inside about his experience as a psychopath. The link is in the bio. It's a fantastic book. I would definitely recommend it. He's obviously, you know, one of the the best placed people in the world to give insight about it. And he's very, he writes in a very accessible style. Follow James on Twitter on at James H. Fallon. Catch me and Andrew Gold underscore OK on Twitter and Instagram. And make sure to get the bonus questions from each episode on patreon.com slash Gold or through the Patreon app, or by signing up to Apple subscriptions and the Apple Podcast app. You'll find the video version of this on youtube.com slash andrewgold1, where you can also sign up for bonus material there if you prefer. And I put a really cool background in, which I was testing out today, and it looks really cool, so do have a look at that. By the way, I realised after the interview that I think a cable in my microphone was loose, and the quality is now a bit iffy. I'm a bit gutted because I'm a stickler for audio, but it's not too bad. It just sounds a bit mediocre, and I'm sorry about that. Anyway, I've been really organised this week, and I've sorted out loads of guests for the next, uh, I think, four episodes. Uh, That includes Thomas Leeds next week, who lost his memory before it was restored, partially, by a song he heard. Uh, Catherine Burblesing, who is incredible and made her own sort of almost anti-woke school for kids and former Scientologists John Atak and Chris Shelton. But for now, here's Dr. James Fallon. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? You all right? I'm, I'm good. I just, uh, I just had a, a, a German journalist here for two days, 16 straight hours of interviewing. So, that, so my voice is a little fuzzy. Oh my that, God. that was that was fun. Is that but, your life? Like you must just get so many. I always worry about having people who are of of a certain eminence or or notoriety on the show because I just think they must get so many. You must re- do you get tired of repeating and having to keep ans- answering questions? Well, I like to answer questions I've never heard before. Or, uh, what I you know I don't know what's coming up. Um, I'm usually at the you know I'm usually at the beginning when it has to do with this right. I'm usually asked, uh, what, you know, I just finished uh, one with the History Channel, but that was about mind control and MK Ultra and everything. So I didn't have to talk about my story, which was great. And then, and then I just finished one with uh, uh, that's coming up next month with, with William Shatner on how the brain works. And that was, you know, so when it's, when it's just kind of open-ended, uh, it's great, but usually, you know, if it's we're talking about psychopathy, psychopathy, or people are expecting that, I usually at the beginning have to tell my story, and and I, you know, I don't. That's less fun, you know what I mean? Now, what makes it less fun is if I tell anybody, like my kids or grandkids or any friends, listen to I just did a podcast, and I think that the last half is good. Then they they start hearing me talking about myself. They turn it off because I've heard it so many times. So I end up, nobody ends up hearing my my podcast because they get through it. It's the same old shit, Jim. Give us yeah. something new. I said, well, it's at the end. Like, ah, you know, <laughs> so that's, that is, you've just, you've just voiced the, the concern of every interviewer 
which is yeah. that thing of like, you want to ask something different, but what is there when you've done that many interviews? What what really is there? And I wish I could afford you that same luxury. No, no, of- I'm just saying, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not trying to inhibit or, you know, eschew anything, but it's just, yeah, that's the, the, the real answer. But, um, and I don't care. I mean, they've heard that, but, and, and it's, it's no big deal, but I'm just asking, I'm answering the one question you had. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, you know, I want an honest answer. And I often ask people that and they say the same thing. It's, it's interesting to me just to hear what it's like to be on the other side. Uh, and it, you know, helps me think about what questions to ask. Yeah. You, so you work a lot with, um, fMRI scans. One thing I'm interested in, which I don't know if it's necessarily your field, but I'm just intrigued. I'm, I'm wondering, will we ever, or can you read somebody's mind from an fMRI scan? Will we ever be able to do that? We can read their brain activity. And then you can say, when we see these combinations of activity in different areas of the brain over time, so if you've got 12 different areas, and we know those areas connect up uh, as part of a functional system, we call that a connectome, that connectome of all those parts, when they're acting in a certain way, that is correlated with certain thoughts Mm -hmm. and then behaviors. So what can be done is you can look at the the combination of areas that are turned on and off at the same time yeah. and, and keep in mind that the same area of the brain is used for 10 different functions. So it's all the combinations of these connections or the implied connections where you can start to evince or you know start to guess what exactly is the function that goes along with it. And then you do a lot of correlative work too. You look at what lesions have been done to kind of turn it off. You look at people in different tasks, right, in in functional scans like PET scans and fMRIs and SPEC scans and and even EEGs sometimes, that Mm -hmm. people are thinking about something or looking or doing something. And so you have to put these all together in a correlative way. So if the question is, can you use functional brain scans in combination with about five or six other techniques that are, in terms of space and time, coherent? with that, you can start to then correlate what the, what sort of domain of thinking that, that person is, is, is engaged in. Let's go on to some stuff that you have answered a million times, but just on, on psychopathy, you know, what makes a psychopath genetics and environment, what's going on? Are you born a psychopath? No, you're not born a psychopath. You're, what you're born with are a set of genetically determined personality traits. So if you look at, there may be up to 600, uh, you can really put 350 different complex adaptive behaviors. Uh, For example, and as you go through development, when the baby first laughs, the baby first is fearful, those are all complex adaptive behaviors, all the way up to, uh, you know, lovemaking and beyond. And And so those will develop sequentially in an ordered way uh, uh, given a basically a normal development from birth onwards and even before birth. And those are f- basically determined by a combination of genes. So each trait is impacted by about 15 genes. It's really like 10 to 50 or 100. But you look at the main genes, each of those traits is 15 genes. And each one of the genes has at least two alleles, two forms of the gene. Mm-hmm. And, and one will code for the high function and the, the other allele will code for the low function. So high violence or low violence, you know, high emotional empathy, low emotional empathy. So they have a yin yang, same function, but one is like a, is, 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 is the, the, the yin side of the function. The other is the yang side of the function. And that's a random guess of the combination of those, let's say 15 genes, which alleles combination are you inheriting from your mother and father? And that's the car, that's that's the deck that you're 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 dealt out all things equal. That is, if you just are raised sort of normally, not in a special way, normally, you will basically tend to be what your genes are. And so, and you know, if you ask a, a parent uh, when a kid is born, they'll tell you all sorts of things, you know, with a, well, I'm gonna turn them into you know a reflection of me. And, you know, churches, religions do this, countries do this, you know, different sects do this, and in and, and, and schools do it. Everybody's going to make them in the image. But this, 
you know, all things being equal, they're just going to develop as they were genetically wired to, unless you start abusing them or, or banning them, you know, right. they're starving. It has, you know, under those conditions. So, so with the, with these genes, if you have a combination of genes that it's the alleles, the, each of the alleles for high aggression, if you happen to inherit, let's say 10 of the 15 that are high aggression, you're naturally going to be a very aggressive person. doesn't make you violent. It doesn't make you a criminal or a psychopath or anything, but you'll be highly aggressive, highly competitive. And, and so you'll be a pain in the ass to be play poker with, play pain in the ass to play Scrabble with. You, you know, it, somebody like that's got to win everything to the point of pissing people off, but it's not criminal. It's not insane. It's not psychopathic or anything. And it's not immoral. Yeah. It's how you're wired. Now, like any casino game of mixing these alleles for each trait, uh, it's it's like playing craps. You know, you, the chances are you're going to get the, a middle amount. You, if you take all the dice and, you know, it's, you're throwing a one or a six and a combination. So you're going from two, right, up to 12. But most of the time you're doing sixes and sevens and eights. And most of the people in the world, in the population, are six and sevens and eights. And this is called normality. Hmm. You're in the middle. But there are normal people. They're, they're, there's not, they're nothing that crazy. They're, they're not pathological. That happen to inherit all of the high ones or all of the low ones, right? And Or, you know, they're, they're throwing 12s and 11s or 2s and 3s, you know, when they're throwing the dice. And yeah. so these people, uh, and they could be brothers, even though they have the same parents, they're not inheriting the same thing. They're only going to be about 48% alike. So you can get in the same family, two brothers brought up in the same environment. One will be the one that's very aggressive, has to win all the time. And the other one, ah, who cares? And yeah. it's honest, you know, but now, so if you take uh, the traits that are associated with different disorders, psychiatric disorders, and your, your, your nostrils just flared, Andrew, that, that bored you right there. Do you want me to speed up? It, that's, it's interesting you say that because I noticed my nostrils flare and it's something that my girlfriend said to me. Well, I was just on holiday in Italy. Uh, that just, sounds like I'm showing off at Italy now. And she said, you're doing that face again when your nostrils flare. Uh, it's funny you say it's a, a sign of boredom because I thought it's, would that not be, it's more a sign of aggression. Not, and I don't feel aggressive or, or bored. Yeah, no, it just, it would be kind of a universal it doesn't mean yeah. you're doing it, but it's a universal, like, um, it's like, when is this guy going to speed this answer up? It's one of those things. You can read that, no. but that's, that's not going to bother me. I just want no, no, to no. say. You like, know what goes, I, to give you an insight into, into, so my side of the interview, I'm I'm balancing, listening very intently and, and, and the conversation. And I also have a list of questions. Oh, you can't even see. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. No, just things you got to do. So it's like, come on. Okay. So, no, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to speed you up though. No, no, because this, I, this, the, the, the stuff before was really boring, but this was really interesting. So please continue. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. But no, please do. Yeah. I yeah. love this because my, my so, brother's very aggressive and I'm very. And the other thing is, I'm thinking of jokes to say about, of course, you know, oh, that sounds like my girlfriend, the aggressive. Sure. My yeah, yeah. So I'm, that's going through my mind as well. So there's a lot of stuff going well, I'm, on. I'm happy you responded that way. You're right with it. Uh, you didn't, it didn't, <laughs> didn't throw you off at all. So, it, so anyway, you're going yeah. to basically have those traits but if you have what are called and there are certain vulnerability genes mm. okay and the vulnerability genes having to do with violence or empathy or a number of traits having to do with these what are called cluster b personality disorders cluster b's are like psychopathy or aspd uh, uh, also histrionic personality disorder Right. A borderline personality. These are ones where people are, uh, first of all, almost all of those have very low emotional empathy. They may have high cognitive empathy, but low emotional empathy. That's a common trait to these. And basically it means they don't feel what you feel as we're talking. Uh, you know, if you get happy, I would get happy. You get sad, I'd get sad. It's something that's emotional empathy that you want in a, in a mate. You, you probably hope that one parent, not both have this, one parent has one type and the other, and your best friend, and you might, may have multiple best friends, but you want one friend, a lot of people to kind of cry on each other's shoulder, but you want another friend to just tell you the truth. 
and they can both be friends, but one can be, one's more emotional empathy, one's more cognitive empathy. And so each one of those has certain genes associated with it, like oxytocin, vasopressin, wow. testosterone receptors, a whole list of genes having to do that. Depending on what you inherit, you will, you'll be that way. So there's a certain testosterone receptor in males that makes them very selfish. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, it's just when I win a game, I keep everything. Uh, whereas the other form, it's like, I, you know, I won and now let's, I'm going to use the money to buy us all a beer. You yeah. see, that's another type of, you know, the, the other testosterone receptor. So based on the random assortment that you inherit, if you have all of these traits, the genes associated with these traits, and you have those traits, then if you're abused or abandoned early in life from birth to about two years old, sometimes up to three, that is, that induces the epigenetic marking of the regulators of those specific genes. And so that's the answer is it's, it's, you're not born with it, but if you are born with a certain genetics that codes for these traits, and there's a lot of there, a lot of the alleles you have make you vulnerable to epigenetic marks for violence, for low uh, empathy, uh, for other uh, for other traits. Then you're in trouble. Then this is this is this is the trigger that it makes it almost permanent for life. Wow. Without without wanting to go too far into determinism, is this not a little bit depressing? That uh, the way you tell it, we're sort of robots we're machines with numbers and digits and things inside of us and it is what it is and everything's going to happen anyway is that right well no because you know this is one of the one of these things that's absolutely preventable so these you know cluster b's all you need is not to have people around you when you're very young you're born abuse you yeah but they are programmed to abuse you well they they may or may they may or may not be it may be it you know, you can take one brother, a kid, to the top of the stairs and throw him down, and they jump up laughing. Mm-hmm. And you do the to the other brother, and they, he comes up and he's like marked for life with trauma. Okay, so it's you can't always get the combination, uh, you know, based on the parent parentage and their behavior. And it's it's very it's odd to have two parents that are like that. You do have it. So the real psychopaths that do damage, murder rape, pedophilia, those sorts of things. A lot of times uh, one per, one of the one side of the family will have that. And maybe on the other side, they may have bipolar disorder, or they may have the type of person who's preyed upon by psychopaths and people with NPD. That's a marriage of, of these. And there's, you know, uh, one of the scientists that uh, my main collaborator in this, he was the one that discovered in the mid eighties of this assortative mating, that when you mate, when you're looking for a mate, you don't know you're doing this, it's not conscious. You're basically looking half for somebody who's exactly like you and half for somebody who's the opposite. And, you know, and that's what, that's why, you know, any good pairing for a long lasting marriage, you have to have one extrovert and one introvert. Two extroverts don't work, two introverts don't work, they bore each other to death. Uh, And so there are certain combinations that really work toward long survival of a relationship, like a long-term marriage. And if they're not, you know, a lot of these traits are not matched up. It's very, it's a struggle to stay married or together with somebody or even to be a roommate with somebody. Mm -hmm. So you need a little little bit of both, which is basically, I'm kind of like you, so I understand why you're pissed off why I just did that. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm like this, so I need this. So there's, um, so it goes with mating too. And so it doesn't have to be pathology, even though you're with a wife or a husband and they think you're pathological because the other half is coming out, you know? Yeah. I just wanted anyone that would have me, to be honest. And then, you know, just. Well, see, no, you've got a very good attitude or right off the bat. <laughs> you're like, a, you know, that's like, you're like, a, you're like an you're like an AB negative, you know, you're, you're the universal recipient personality wise. What's an AB negative? You know, the AB negative, the blood type, oh. right? There's o, o positives, which most people are, are universal donors, uh, but they, they, they can only have certain blood, but the AB negatives uh, are very rare, but they can get anybody's blood, you know? So the universal <laughs> recipient 
O positives yeah. are the universal donors. <laughs> yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's quite a British thing, I think, to, or, to not know about your blood type. Brits don't know our blood type. For, for what, Americans do, don't you? You all know, oh, I'm this positive or that. We don't know in Britain. No one knows. Well, because of our roads. You know, we everybody's got to know because of exploding, you know, car wrecks, high-speed car wrecks. I think it has something to do with that. Okay. You know, there's more... You know, you're more you're more likely not to have a fatal crash. I'm I'm guessing this. I'm making it up, but I think it's something like to safe, do with yeah, safe the roads. size and scope. You know, we have roads where now you go 90 miles an hour. What is that in kilometers? Clicks. No, we anyway. do miles. We do miles in the UK. Yeah, right. But yeah, right. True, but not not in north. You, I'm you, in Germany you, you now. You do that. Yeah, they do kilometers here you know, in Germany. You do that in southern, like in Ireland. Uh, in Ireland, I'm pretty sure there are miles as well. I, yeah. I'm from London, so you know, all over England, definitely. I'm pretty sure yeah, there's yeah. also also miles. It's we do a mix of the metric and the so yeah, Americans yeah. often presume we don't do that sort of six foot three kind of thing, but we do. It's just that we're also a bit more familiar with centimeters and stuff uh, right. like that. But we do inch, we just mix it all up. It's what you know, what a what a mess. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Why are there more, uh, or does it seem there are more, or at least more dangerous, male psychopaths than, than female ones? Well, because you can see the damage more obviously. You know, there are uh, now known to be more female psychopaths than there were before. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. basically that you change the definition of what manipulation is and what the killing is or the raping or the damage or the stealing. Uh, and it's just now it's known for the past 20 years, especially 15 years, that women are more likely to use sociopaths, which are different than psychopaths. They're oh. used to, yeah, they're, they're different. And well, so gonna, that's another question I'm going to have to ask as well. OK, yeah. And, and so psychopath, psychopathic women tend to gather up some sociopaths, younger sociopath, males or females 
to do their dirty work for them. So they manipulate them to do the work. Ooh. So they're once removed from the damage. <laughs> and, and I remember to, to asked my wife, we're talking about it a few years ago. And I said, who's the most psychopathic people, you know, he goes, well, 13 year old girls. He says, you know, she went to an old girl's school. He said, because they're always manipulating people to do real damage to other people yeah. for them. It's just yeah. that it's not looked about. And she said it tongue in cheek, but it's partially true. Yeah. Uh, there are some female so psychopaths who kill just like males do. Usually that, you know, uh, they tend to be people around the males in a vulnerable position like prostitutes. Right. So they, you know, people like prostitutes, we got the, the man's pants down. So, uh, but otherwise female psychopaths will usually have somebody doing their, their, the direct hit or dirty work. So what is the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? Well, it's the difference is, you know, the psychopaths, it's a personality disorder and sociopaths, not the same thing. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, something perhaps easier to imagine. There's, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. People who have uh, the obsessions and compulsions, washing their hands and doing these routines over and over again. If you have regular obsessive compulsive disorder, you know that these things are crazy, but you can't mm -hmm. stop doing them. Now, people with OCD PD, the obsessive compulsive personality disorder, they think these things are perfectly fine. So the people with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, delusional, uh, they will, yeah, they are, they think that what they're doing is correct. So it's similar to a psychopath versus the sociopath. The psychopath is a personality disorder and they, they think it's okay what they're doing. That is their moral reasoning and their decisions. They know that you may think it's evil and bad and sinful, but they don't, they, they, they don't feel it in their heart. It's not there. It's not, there's not a moral issue. It's like somebody who's blind, who's never seen at all when, when they're earlier, they don't know what you're talking about. They know the word, but they themselves, they don't feel it. It would be maybe something like uh, the average person would feel not paying for a parking spot. You, you know, that's wrong. It's a sin. You know, well, some people think it's terrible. If you do that, right? If you yeah. do these, like these, these, well, most people would just say that's not a moral issue. It's just you know, you're paying. You just you have to pay your way. It's just, and so they feel a little bit like that. That is the psychopath thinks it's like just paying a fine. It's some little little rule that somebody else has that don't doesn't apply. Sociopaths, on the other hand, they know what they're doing is wrong, mm. and they do it anyway. They they have moral reasoning. Uh, if they're caught, oftentimes they'll show remorse, feel guilt, uh, whereas a psychopath doesn't, which makes them, you know, for a psychopath can get away with a lot, you know, with their mates, uh, with their spouse, with the police, because when they're caught, they really don't feel guilty and they have no tells. They have no guilty tells. There's yeah. no twitching of the lip or any, you know, any sweating because they don't, it's not there. So the police and the mate and the spouse said, well, he's not guilty. He's, he's, there's, there were no tells there. And, uh, and people will naturally be able to see that. Whereas a sociopath uh, will, will show, have those tells, they have show that anxiety and remorse and guilt, and they know what they're doing is wrong. And I guess in that sense, the real sinner is the sociopath, not the psychopath, because the psychopath in, in their heart, they don't really believe what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. Know? Psychopaths more like the, the scorpion and the frog uh, tail or you know the scorpion the frogs carrying the scorpion is that it frogs carrying a scorpion across the, the and it says i'll take you across as long as you don't sting me and he says okay and then takes a and then he stings them and they both drown he said what why did you sting me and he says because i'm a scorpion scorpion um, that's what do. that's exactly it's just a, you know it's a it's a, just a predator the psychopath is a predator usually a sociopath is a somebody who may have been bullied or rejected a number of times and they're easily triggered and they spend the rest of their life getting even with that kind of person. They're mm. either against society or a certain group in society uh, and they feel like they're losers. So it's usually a young loser getting even with the world. Psychopath is not that. Right. Right. Did you um, analyze Emmy Thomas? Was that you? No, she wrote, she, she wrote a blurb on my book. The, the, oh, the publisher wrote, but, and I, you know, it, it talked to her, but no, no, I haven't. 
Okay, okay. It's just uh, yeah. Um, I spoke to her on this a, a while ago. So I'm gonna, you know, we've, I've I've delayed forty minutes of, of <laughs> trying not to ask you about for you to tell your story. Um, but would you be able to please recount sure. it for these listeners? Yeah, sure. Uh, the the way I discovered I had these traits was back around 2005 to six. And at the time we were doing an analysis of the genes responsible for Alzheimer's disease. So our usual thing in order to do individual diagnoses, personalized medicine diagnoses, we do uh, imaging, either PET scans usually, that's the best way, doing that study. Uh, we didn't have enough controls. We had a lot of people with Alzheimer's, but in order to finish it, we needed control. So I said, hey, I'll get myself and my, my, my brothers, my wife, and some of my kids, and we'll do it because none of, none of us has Alzheimer's, but my wife's family all had Alzheimer's, not all, but you know, too many. And so I said, this may be a, a, a good opportunity to get the, the study done. And I asked my wife, uh, do you want to do this? It may be bad news that you have the genes and starting the brain pattern of somebody with dementia. And she said, the hell with that, I'll do it. Now she said that because she's quirky and funny and strong that way, but she had also just come off of uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. She had an enormous tumor mm. throughout her body and she ended, ended up getting cured, you know? So that's great. But Fantastic. she said, look, and I'm going to die of cancer before I die of Alzheimer's. Let's do it. And so that's her sense of humor too. And so we did it. Uh, and, uh, so everybody went in and had it done. Now, it just so happened at the same time I had finished studying the, the genetics and also especially the imaging of all these like serial killers and murderers. And so there was a whole group of them at that time. And so and I didn't know who was who, because by that time, you know, after doing 15 years of looking at murderers who had come in, you know, we weren't careful enough, I think. And most groups weren't because some of the people uh, analyzing this stuff, you wanna be blind, you don't wanna know who's who. And so I made sure that I never know who was who. And so names were always covered up in any of the experiments. And so at any rate, I had just finished looking at all these new scans of these murders and had come up with a theory, a, you know, a uh, sort of a, a temporary theory because I saw a pattern in the brains of these certain killers. and. And so one group of killers were, were disorganized and they had a lot of brain damage from being hit over the head with pipes and drug, you know, so they were kind of a mis, dis, you know, a mixed disordered group. Uh, then there were what turned out to be impulsive murders. And there was like 10 in there and I could see they, the scans looked different. And then there was this other group of, of about 20, 20 some odd, because I had some from before and these were largely psychopaths. And I saw the pattern in the brain and the, the brain pattern in the scan showed that certain areas together were turned off. And, and that, and I, as soon as I saw that, I knew the circuit, like I, what I was talking about before, there's these connections in the brain and they form certain functional circuits. And, I, and so the particular circuit affects social behavior, but also limbic or emotional function. So it's sort of the emotional connection between people. And I saw it, I went, aha. So then I you know, started to give talks. I wrote a, a first paper on that back in 2005, six, uh, on that pattern. And I became interested. It's not something I had looked at before. When the technicians brought our family, including my scans in that pile, I looked through, because I'm, you know, I'm interested in if any of the people in our family looks like they're getting Alzheimer's. And I went through each one as I went through the pile. I, as I went through, I, I got through seven of them and they all looked normal. Now I had to go back and really analyze them in detail, but I've seen so many of these scans, thousands of scans of different people with different disorders that I, I can tell quickly if there's something obvious, but it looked obvious like everybody was okay. So I was, you know, I was going, ah, great, 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 great. And then I got to the last scan uh, and I looked at it and I started laughing. I said, okay, guys, you, you slipped in one of the serial killers and, you know, into my family scan. Ha ha. Very funny, you know, and uh, because we do screw around 
you're not supposed to screw around for more than a minute though. You know what I mean? It's like the joke you're supposed to, you know, uh, you're <laughs> yeah. supposed to quickly have a reveal when you have a, when you're talking about human health, if any jokes, the reveal should come in a few seconds. So anyway, and they go, no, no, this is your family scan. I said, please, you got to go back and check the scanner computer to make sure it's one of ours. Cause I said, this person right here, whoever this is, shouldn't be walking around in open society. This is probably a very dangerous person. And they said, no. So they checked it and came back sometime later. And they said, no, that is one of your family. At that point, I had to peel back the tape uh, to look at the name because, you know, it was like my civic duty to get this sure. person off the street. And, and there it was. That was, you know, that's when Gandalf showed up at my door and it was my name on there. Fucking hell. <laughs> it's the most extraordinary story I honest, I think I've ever heard. Um, it's so it's 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 weird and it's purely by serendipity. Uh and, and a couple of things happened about the same in the same month that were like this. It was just very mm. strange. Yeah. Didn't your your mother warned you about your she said you were investigating psychopathy and you know, given your family history, you should look into yourself. For my mother, while we're uh, cooking, she's going, Jim, I got a I got a book from your cousin. You gotta you gotta see this. It's about your family. I said it's about our family. No. It's about your family, your father's family. She goes, look at this page. And it and it was like, it's called Killed Strangely. It's the story of the first murder of a, of a mother by a son. That is matricide in the American colonies. This is back in 1660s. Okay. And uh, so as I look through, that person was my direct grandfather. And that's the first killing, the first murder. And it was during kind of the Salem witch trial. So it's an interesting book for the history going on then. Mm. But but she goes, read further. So all the way along, there are different murders or very bad actors in our family, you know, that are directly linked. These are direct grandparents. And then it kind of went and sort of fizzled out in the late 19th century with Lizzie Borden, who was Lizzie Borden's famous in the United States, uh, for killing her her parents and it was the, we always knew we knew every every kid knew the poem growing up you know in the 50s and 60s and 70s and before that mm -hmm. 40s and 30s there, there was a on, on your ted talk there was a sharp uh, intake a, an audible intake of breath when you said that uh, among the audience because as you say it's, she's obviously very well known in the very anybody yeah all the people our age and older and some even younger would have had this little tune that you know lizzie borden had an axe and she gave her mother 40 wax. And when she was done, she gave her father 41. So, you know, like 80, you know, brutal murder. Uh, but also, so at any rate, uh, and since that time, my two cousins who discovered this, you know, that this whole lineage, because they, they're the ones that called up and said, you got to check this book out. But they found a total of three lines on my father's side filled with these murders. And and you know, one of one line with the worst ones goes back through uh, John Lackland, you know, King John Lackland, uh, that whole lineage. And so it's got all the, the worst, the worst of the murdering uh, English kings. Jesus. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, these stories are like having, you know, horse thief in your family. But we have three of those four lines who had all these murders, and, and you know, people mm -hmm. who left their family and did other bad things, and so. That went from genealogy and genographics to there's a lot, you know, probably a lot of, uh, you know, alleles in there that yeah. wouldn't get so diluted because they keep, you know, keep adding on. So at any rate, that happened about the same time. So it was right after that. I was like, what? So we also have that, too. And I said, <laughs> and when I had come home, you know, that the week before and told my wife, I said, the screwiest thing happened. And I said, we had all our scans done. And by the way, dear, you look, your brain looks normal that you don't have early Alzheimer's. That was the real news. And I said, and just this crazy thing. I said, my, my PET scan looked just like all these, like the worst kind of psychopath that I'd been studying for years. And she said something curious. She, she said, that doesn't surprise me. Hmm. And, you know, from what I've told you already, she's got a quirky sense of humor and a dry sense of humor because her background is mostly English. You know, of course, they, they, she's, that is stuck, you know, that's you. Yeah. And so, whereas, you know, the other side of the family is all Sicilians. We have kind of a wet humor. It's a party. And so, you know, all, and it's very, um, there's a, a lot of kinetics involved. 
Okay. With the, all with her family, she, she's very quiet, you know, it's very dry and pithy and right to the point. So it's great. So she was, she had a lot of a funny few, few words. And I, you know, and I, she saved it. You know, after that happened, uh, the BBC came over to do like a part of like a documentary. So they were, in, they were here for a couple of days. We sat in the backyard and it was cooking and, uh, and they asked the, you know, they asked my wife and, it's the only time she agreed to do an interview. She said, what do you think about all this? What, what do you think about your husband? She goes, well, I'm married to two guys. So this one guy who's like a lot of fun, really good guy. Mm. You know, he's like, he's like Andrew Gold. You know? He's like, oh. he's like this wonderful smiling, he got, got a good looking at that time, really good shape. Yeah. Like, You're talking about the singer, the singer from the 80s or me? No, the singer from the 80s. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Do you know so. Lonely, Lonely Boy? Do you know that one? <laughs> yes, oh, of course. Lonely Boy. Yeah, the yeah. bastard. He's, he's taken up the whole first page of Google. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of been a, 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 a sort of an impediment to you moving forward, hasn't it? It, it has been, and he's, he died. Uh, he died very young. He was like 51 or so. It's very strange to wake up and see in the newspaper, Andrew Gold dies, but it wasn't me. Well, a little... A, well, I, I have a side note on that after I just finished this. So she said, so I'm married to this guy who's this smiling, wonderful, funny, really good guy. Everybody thinks he's the greatest guy in the world. And, he, and she said, there's this other guy that you don't know who is very dark that I don't like at all. And mm. she said that. It was kind of it was a strong for her. And then she said, that's the last interview I'm ever doing. And 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 so, uh, but anyway, that was that was her sort of, you know, denouement of, the, of this whole thing. It's like, I know yeah. who you are, and, I, and so I'm not going to talk to anybody else. But the guy, but uh, Andrew Gold from the 80s, dying at 51, you know, I was I was approached by um, uh, Gene Simmons, you know, Gene Simmons, yeah. lead, lead singer Kiss, and I know mm-hmm. by his son, uh, and I did an interview with him for Vice and for Huffington Post, and so we became friends and then I met, you know, Gene. And then when Gene just finished a book a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, uh, called uh, 27, it's the myth of 27, which is, you know, that's when rock mm-hmm. stars die. Yeah. And and I said, first of all, I said, Gene, so he wanted me to write the last chapter of this book that he put out on the, you know, rockers who die at 27. I said, Gene, most of these rockers die in their fifties. It's not, yeah. it just so happens when you and I were growing up, you know, Janis Joplin, and, and mm-hmm. they all died at 27, but it says yeah. that's really not when people die. Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's Jeff Buckley. You know Jeff Buckley? Jeff, no. no. His, his dad was famous and died early as well, but another Buckley, I can't remember his name. Okay, yeah. yeah. So there are a lot, but really the most are in their mid 50s. Sure. We're 57. But anyway, and so uh, that particular chapter was like written for people like millennials and Z's who want to know about brain development and when they're susceptible to addiction, when they're susceptible to PTSD and war at what age. And it was, you know, my pleading for never letting, never allowing a, anybody to 25 or under to be in the infantry, to be in a war. Cause that's, you know, and based on, you know, brain development and when you're vulnerable. And so I explain it in that it's, it's, I think it's my, the best I've ever explained it. The shortest mm-hmm. Um these 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 problems, both for depression and addiction, but also psychopathy, uh, was in that the, it's the last chapter in the book with Gene and the twenty seven. But anyway, yeah. Um, so that's that's I, I answered a bunch of questions that you you didn't ask. <laughs> no, but that's how that's how I like it. Often I ask too many okay, questions good. and they, they don't answer enough of them. But so you don't have that long left, do you? You've got to go in nearly twenty minutes, right? Well, I've got a meeting at 12 uh, uh, with my company, but is that 30 Is thirty minutes okay? Yeah, that's good. Good. I've, okay. I've, I've just, okay, good. I've got more time. Um, so, yeah, so why, why you've got this brain, right? You've got a brain. Your brain is this, you know, we've talked about genes and everything like that. Your brain is telling you, you know, you're a, you're a serial killer. So why, as far as I know, are you not a serial killer? Why would I answer that? <laughs> no, I'm not. Fuck no. me. No, I'm not. <laughs> no. oh, that's yeah. that's what, scary. That's I, I think that was the first question Simon Mirren asked me. He goes, <laughs> right? Because you know, after I, after I, I, 
you know, after this came out and then I was asked to do a TED talk and then I said, well, I'll do it on this. And then after it was put up about five months after the, the talk, I didn't know at the time it was going to be up at all. And then Simon Mirren saw it immediately. And that was one of the first questions. He goes, I think I know what the whole TED talk is about. He says, you're not talking about you. You're talking about this epigenetic, this, this transgenerational thing about people who grew up in bad neighborhoods. He goes, I grew up in South London in a very bad area and I had all these friends and I got all these other friends. And he says, you talk about the effect of bullying and violence uh, growing up, you know, in these areas. I, he got it immediately. Simon Mirren's brilliant. Wow, and his and his his aunt is is really brilliant too. I mean, she's a, a very smart woman. But in talking with him, I think one of the second or third questions, he goes, "You're talking about serial killers, right?" And he says, "Well, I, you know, he says I, I was showrunner and writer for Criminal Minds. He was the guy, and he and another person, and uh, and he goes, are you are you a serial killer?' I got to ask up front, you know, <laughs> and, and I paused, and he started, and he cracked up immediately. He was like, 'Cause he, you know, he." Oh, you've done, you've done this before. What was what wasn't just for me then the, the the pause joke. It wasn't that was you've done it before. I feel cheated on. Well, I only have done it once, and that's with Simon Mirren back in uh, ten years ago. So it's okay. been I've not used it since. It's with Brits. You do it. You know it works. With no, Brits. just I, you and him. That's the only. <laughs> I've talked to other Brits and I haven't used it. Okay, okay. I I believe you then. Can I use that bit for the trailer? I'll do a little teaser on Twitter, and when I say uh, <laughs> why why aren't you a serial? Sure. Person? Oh yeah, no, anything I say here, sure. Sensationalism, but yeah, go go on. Why aren't you? Why aren't you? You know what's going on? Yeah, well, you know, you can't tell somebody's a psychopath or have, has a you know personality disorder by looking at a brain scan or genetics, uh, but you can guess their traits, right? So you you can see their traits. The only way to really show that you are is to be studied and tested a series of formal and informal structured and unstructured sorts of psychiatric exams with a psychiatrist or psychologist who is an expert in personality disorders. It's, it's important to find out what, what you think about how you are and what you do. And remember, you know, I mentioned that psych, psychopaths and sociopaths could do the same thing, but why they do them is different. And you have to understand what, what, does the person you're talking about think about what they're doing and how they think and that determines whether they they really are a psychopath or, or a sociopath and and so that's a key thing so people i well i'm not, you know i score under that threshold and so the threshold would be a 28 to 30 points on the robert hare mm -hmm. you know a test or the equivalent on the PPI, the Psychopathic Personality Inventory, which is used more for normal people finding their traits, or the Levinson test. Uh, and and, and I'm, I'm about a 25, so I'm not a categorical clinical psychopath. I've just missed it, right? Because okay. I don't have some traits that are the more pernicious uh, mm. sort of this. Some, some of the hair ones are not... It feels a bit odd to me, and not that I have any, you know, I'm a lay person, what do I know? But it, it's, they feel the questions towards the end are not uh, traits so much as things that have happened. They're like, oh, that's right. has a history of being in prison, this and that. So I think if you're a smart enough psychopath, you can get away without getting any points. That's a, I mean, that's a great insight because, you know, if, uh, let's say I needed to steal or mm. kill or needed sex or, or whatever, I just never have. It's a function of growing up in a great family, I believe, because, you know, my, my early life from birth on was fantastic. Hmm. And I married a fantastic wife who's very tough and can handle any of the stuff and have, and have been surrounded by uh, wonderful people. And, and therefore, I don't think I've ever had a need to even go over the line. And so I haven't gone over the line and I haven't been put in prison, but I've done a lot of mischievous things, you know, that would, that gets people in trouble. But for me, they're just fun and a lark and I get a buzz out of doing those things. And, uh, and every time, anytime we've been caught, the police and talking to me will just say, he's, he's not guilty. This guy's just along for a good ride. When have you been caught by police? Cause I saw you talk about this before and I thought you're an esteemed professor 
What do you mean you're getting out of trouble with the police? What's going on? What have you been up to? No, no. Well, you know, growing up, <laughs> I, I I was really good at making bombs, you know, and um, <laughs> fuck off. But but this is you know growing up, you know, when you're yeah. ten and interested in I can make fire uh, bombs. Um, I I knew kind of the chemistry to use, mm. and I loved the big boom and and you know at that time growing up at that time in 1960. Uh, people just assume you were interested in chemical engineering, which was true. And so the same acts now that I was doing then, it, it, we'd do things like we'd steal a car, but we always returned the car filled with gas. We always returned the car kind of shined up. So it was, at, you know, so anything we did that I did like that, I always brought things back intact and a little better. So even though the act itself was illegal, right? Uh, it, it always, I, it never stuck. I was made sure to make it right and make it better. Even why did you make it right? Why? Well, it seems like seemed like the just thing to do because I wasn't. I, I never took anything and kept it. I always, I've never stolen anything, and kept it, but I've done it for a lark. I'm, I'm, I was a thrill seeker, and you know that thrill seeking uh, behavior to me is what it was about. It wasn't, there's was no psychopathy. I never thought of it that way. I always thought of it as I, I do things, uh, I push things that people normally wouldn't do. And I bring them along for the ride. And it's usually, they have a lot of fun, but they'll always say, you know, I, I've never done this stuff before. I wouldn't have done it, but I talk them into doing it and they always have a good time. Nobody, nobody ends up getting hurt, even though it's scary. Right. And it's, I've done this with, you know, my brother and brothers and, uh, and some of my best friends and my brother-in-law, he used to, you know, my brother-in-law went to West Point and he ran the a whole area on the border of Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, right in that edge, where, right in the key edge, the triangle where the Ho Chi Minh Trail was. And he would lead groups of Montagnards and they're like Colonel Kurtz to take you know, Ho Chi Minh Trail, really, you know, radical stuff. And, but he, you know, he would always go on trips with me because we always, he said, the, he says all the most dangerous times was with you, you know, we're on the edge of a mountain ready to flip over, you know, in the truck and, or, or we're ready to freeze to death or we're going to get in trouble with a bunch of people. And he liked that because he liked the taste of danger, but I, I knew, you know, I would research things. So I knew how far to push it. You know, when I took my kids water skiing with the sharks and me too, I knew the type of shark and the chances were very low. When I took my son trout fishing in Mount Kenya up in the mountains, I knew, and it, we walked in there, it said caution lions. And I knew beforehand the number of lions and how aggressive they were. So I don't do things, uh, you know, it's not like I go in blindly and do things that are completely irresponsible. I know the odds of, of getting hurt and I don't want anybody to get killed, but I want everybody to have a very, very intense time, including myself. So, okay. so that's the risk side of the, of sort of the, yeah. the fringes of psychopathy. Uh, and I think a lot of the, the other part that people think about a lot is, is the lack of, or the perceived lack of empathy. Um, do, do you feel bad for people when bad things happen to people? Um, apparently not enough. And, and you, I never thought of this myself, but I, you know, as after a couple of psychiatrists, cause I've been around psychiatrists forever and psychologists, even growing up that when they, when I finally asked them to tell me what they really thought of me, they went through a list. They each had a list of psycho. They said, well, these things you do are psychopathic. And I said, no, this is for fun. He goes, no, this is psychopathic. And it shows a disregard for people's uh, health. And, and I go, no, I do it too. He said, and then we'd say, it doesn't matter. This is a, a disregard. And, and then, you know, somebody like my, you know, you know, people in my family would say, you know, you're great to be around, but you're not there. That is, you're not there emotionally. You're not connected emotionally with me. And that happened a bunch of times. And, you know, when I asked this back in, what, 2007, 2009, after I gave a talk in Oslo about our technique for analyzing people, you know, I, I gave a talk with the former prime minister of Norway, and he was, he had bipolar and talked about it. And then I went in and talked about how we use imaging genetics and all this to determine why somebody with bipolar, for example, but I used all my own data. And then 
the psychiatry department was there, including the head of the psychiatry department. And after my talk, he, you know, it was a big auditorium with a bunch of people, lay people too, but also uh, faculty. And he goes, he goes, uh, you know, first of all, you're hypomanic and to the European definition, you're, you're bipolar too. You're mild, mild bipolar. I said, okay. And, but also we want to talk to you afterwards. And so he and the, some of the psychiatrists and psychologists met me afterwards. We had drinks for about three hours and they knew all my biological and imaging data. And in talking to me uh, for the three hours at the end, they said, you're probably right on the edge of being a psychopath. You're very close. That's the first time I took it seriously. That was 2009. This is like four or five years later. I didn't, I didn't give a shit about it. You know, I, I really didn't. It's like, I know who I am. But that's when I went back and started really to ask and get diagnosed and, uh, and all the other stuff. And they, everybody in my life, uh, including these psychiatrists, said, you're not quite a, a psychopath, but you got a lot of traits and here's what you do. And I just blew it off. And one of them, actually two of them asked me when I got back, what do you think about this? What do you think about how you are? To I said, I don't give a shit. And they said, that's exactly your problem. You really don't yeah. care. Yeah, I remember that in the John Ronson uh, psychopath test book. He he wrote that uh, if you're worrying halfway through, you know, if you're worrying that you might be one, which I was intensely, like God, I'm definitely one. I'm so oh no. <laughs> he said, then then you're not one. <laughs> I thought, yeah, oh, you're not one, God. right? Yeah. But even that wasn't enough. They spent the rest of the night going, no, I know, but I definitely feel less empathy than some people about because that is another thing that I find very frustrating. There's nothing. Speaking to you and speaking to Emmy Thomas as well. That firstly, you are very personable um, and it's it's enjoyable talking to you. But I also enjoy it. And this is a bit of a complex thing, because on the one hand, it feels like straight talking. And I know that psychopaths are supposed to lie and be deceptive, but I'd almost rather be lied to about things than, than this. As long as that person doesn't themselves believe that they're somehow more virtuous than other people. And I, I can find that virtue signaling and that thing of look how empathetic I am and competitive empathy. I find it so unattractive that I enjoy talking to you. Well, this is the yeah, the uh, I, I, I personally never have felt superior to anybody. I don't mm. feel superior. I know I have certain talents. Uh, that are more than others. And some people are better things than I am, but I, you know, like as a person, I don't feel at all superior and, uh, and I don't have any secret ways to, you know, insight. Uh, but I still, I like myself. And even though I, you know, these I do these things to people, it's like too bad that, you know, people are hurt because they'll tell me how much they've hurt them without me knowing it. So I said, it's not intentional. How much does that help? Right. Well, it helps a bit. Well, it, it, it does, but it's, you know, it, oh. it doesn't, doesn't in the end really fix their, you know, the hurt in them. And, mm. um, but yeah, people, the virtue signalers, I mean, we, we, you know, where, where, what are they thinking of? What are they, who are they? And so, yeah, I agree with you there. That's a very, mm. very, um, you know, even though I'm, I am narcissistic, I have a big ego, but I try to use it for, to drive me to finish things, to do things, to, you know, to be mm. great at stuff that I can do well. And uh, so I think it's sort of in, incumbent on somebody with certain talents to use them maximally and to be confident about it. And I am, yeah. I, you know, I'm very confident about what I can do. So, uh, but it sometimes comes across uh, in a, in a very negative way. I was like, well, okay, I, I can't stop and then talk mm. people in or out of anything. Let's say, and I, I, I you know, I apologize to listeners who've heard this bit before, because I, I asked Emmy Thomas a similar thing. Uh, somebody comes in this, you can see them come in this room now and they, you know, just kill me. They're slow, torturous death. You know, they're really getting hacking at me and stuff. Uh, be honest, you know, are you going to feel uh, upset and like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Or is it just like, would you, would you just sort of watch? Yeah, it wouldn't get, probably wouldn't get to me. I'd, pr I'd probably just watch. <laughs> I wouldn't be happy this is happening to you, but okay. I wouldn't wince and I'd be analyzing it. You know, I, I You're curious. I'd be curious. I mean, I remember when I was in college, I have a scar here on my arm where I went through a window and it was open my whole forearm up. And when I went, they said, you better go to the doctor on campus. And I went there and my whole, everything was open. Uh, and I could see all my you know, muscles and tendons Pump and blood me. vessels. And I went in and he's, uh, doctors, he's fixing. He goes, 
doesn't this freak you out? He didn't say freak you out, but it was like freak you out. Yeah. Uh, and I go, no, it's that very interesting. Look at it. You can watch everything. It was just, I was able to completely separate it. The fact that it was me really almost, you know, bleeding out. And, um, and so it's true for myself too. I, I, you know, in separating your, the ability, I think, to separate yourself out from that part of you that yeah. is full of angst and full of dread is something, you know, I can do. And I am mostly interested in things that are otherwise terrible, but they may involve me or you. So that would, you know, that would be my response to anything. I do mm -hmm. not have this, this sort of jerk back, disgust, awful reaction. And so when I, you know, do these mm -hmm. functional brain scans and I'm shown pictures of school buses being blown up and terrorist attacks and all this, you know, as bad as it can get. And my, my brain scan shows nothing. And in fact, I don't feel it. You talk of disgust, but there's two things. So there is the disgust of the, the blood and guts happening as I'm being torn apart or whatever. No, but, or the moral it, outrage or just the awfulness. No, it's the, just, it, the empathy, the, sa the sadness. Well, that would be, yeah. Yeah, the empathy or sadness. I'm not happy to see this. I, it's not like I, I don't enjoy knowing or seeing other people getting killed. I don't enjoy mm. it, but I don't have any particular mm. positive or negative reaction. To me, it's an event. Yeah. It's a factual what, what if event. I'm going, what if I'm going, help me, doctor, help. You could call someone. Well, I'd call them. I, I, sure. But just like a, well, I might as well do it. I might as well call. Why not? No, no. I would, I, you know, I would, yeah. try, I would try to certainly to do that. I would, you know, I'd call the police here immediately. I'd yeah. call 911 and saying something is happening in Britain. Get in touch with them. That's how I would do it. Sure, I'd do that. I don't, okay. I don't want to see you die. I don't want to see you tortured or anything. Oh, I but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a, uh, this this emotional upset no okay but okay. i would try to do something for you and yeah. that's what you, cognitive empathy is i know what you're feeling i don't feel it but i'm going to help you yeah i do that all the time okay and that's why people over the years since i was a young teen with all my, my female friends my wife's girlfriends who are still around and come and visit uh, and with my other friends They'll a lot of times will come to me for advice, but I'll never cry. I never get a vote, but I'll try to help them. I'll try to give them the best advice I can with, uh, without, you know, being affected by the emotions like other people do. So, yeah, having cognitive empathy, which is one of the not just having that and no emotional empathy is the trait of people with these personality disorders like psychopathy and narcissism. But it's not it's not a bad thing because the people who have that are more likely to be the people to help you or help others because they're not, you know, or the people who are, they say I'm a, um, empathetic, they'll mostly cry with you and they won't do anything or they'll see, they'll see somebody in need and they don't actually give, send them money or do anything. So people mm. with cognitive empathy that actually do something. But if you yeah. want to have a cry and a sob and a boo-hoo, you wouldn't come to me or anybody like me. Mm. I'll make a note of that. Yeah, just drink a can of Thank you, Dr. Fallon, for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure and really a lot of fun. Do get his book, The Psychopath Inside. The link is in my show notes. And catch our Patreon bonus chat. It's a really good one about communism and beer and orgasms on patreon.com slash andrewgold, the Patreon app, or by subscribing in Apple Podcasts or on YouTube. Join my YouTube channel. So there's a million different ways now. It's all there. I've got 13 of you now on the Apple Podcasts. It only started a couple of weeks ago, uh, although I'm not given the information as to who you are, unfortunately, so I can't shout you out or anything or, or say thanks. But do get in touch if you're one of them and you'd like a shout-out or if you just want to say hi. And just know that I am so, so grateful for your support. Thanks eternally to my new patrons on Patreon. My friend Freddie Fall surprised me by signing up, which was really touching. I actually know Freddie from my six-year stint in Argentina, and he holds the honour of being the only person who has ever made me do exercise. Uh, there was a two-month period where I was courting Hawley, my girlfriend, seven years ago, and I decided to get into shape. And I look pretty good, you know, actually, for me. It's the only time I've ever looked 
good. I took some topless photos at the time just so I can look back on them in 50 years. Or I could look back now, you know, I've put on so much weight now. Freddie is known as the best personal trainer uh, in the world. And if you want to get in shape online or whatever, just get in touch with him on Freddie's Fit Club on Instagram, Facebook, or the official Freddie's Fit Club website. He does online sessions. He's really nice. Uh, and he's not like, you know, how you might imagine some personal trainers, you know, he's very down to earth and he, he's just, he's one of us, but he just likes training for some reason. Also, thank you to Abby Norman, another old friend of mine, lovely person who's apparently really enjoying the show. Also, thanks to Comas in Norway, I believe, who I haven't heard back from on Patreon, but thank you so much for signing up. And finally, Jonathan Posniak who has been listening for a long time and chatting with me on Instagram. Great guy, wonderful photographer. Look him up. That's Jonathan Posniak. Thank you so much, all of you, for making my week a little bit sunnier. Please remember to review on CastBox and Apple. This week, I got one on CastBox from Sven Livesey about last week's episode with Angela Maxwell, who walked around the earth. Uh, Sven said, Wow, that was a great episode. An interesting and passionate woman whose story I enjoyed listening to. Keep up the great work, Andrew. I've been listening to your podcast for about six months now and I'm so happy I found you. Cheers, Sven. Oh, that's lovely. What a lovely one from Sven, who I imagine might be in Sweden, but he could, because Sven, I'm just thinking of Sven Goran Eriksson, the former England football manager, but he might just be Sven from somewhere else. Uh, Cambodi on Apple gave five stars and said entertaining, amusing and incredible interviews. Andrew certainly manages to extract a great interview. The topics are wide ranging and interesting. The interviews are engaging and entertaining whilst Andrew is generous, gentle and kind to his interviewees, which ultimately makes it easy to listen and engage. Thank you so much, Cambodi and Sven and all the others. I couldn't do this without you and all of your support. Um, Oh, and I got this one as well. Uh, on Castbox from David Searle, who said, "Shite podcast. This is not political. Then proceed to talk about politics the whole fucking episode, idiots." Except he didn't say fucking. He said F U C J I M G. So fuck Jim. Uh, and he didn't say whole either. He wrote who. So he said the who fuck Jim episode before calling. Uh, me and whoever I was talking to in the episode he's referring to, uh, idiots. So, you know, you can't please them all, can you? And I hope that by the time you hear this, England are European champions in the football. It's coming home.